And why did they trust you? Actually, that's not true. In the summer of 1994, I got paid for work at Iceland Carrot Growers. I built their website in 1994. In 94? 94, yeah. You built a website in 1994? I built a five-language website in 1994 with my bare hands using Notepad, coding it by hand in HTML. Are you kidding me? I drew a carrot. uh, (laughs) I drew a turnip, a leek, and other root vegetables using paint. You were building websites for carrots. <laughs> yeah. Are you kidding me? <laughs> Doesn't that is... make me sound like a baller, <laughs> does it? <laughs> Let's crack on with the ramble. Welcome to the Innovation Ramble, a weekly podcast where we dive into the world of innovation one subject at a time. So here we are, here we are at TSC Champagne Bar. Thanks to Roberta, thanks to Elton. To Victor, a new manager, Elton, new manager, who just met. Yeah, not Thank very, you. Not, I have no idea who we are stealing their we'll, sandwiches. We'll and, be bringing them up to speed. Yeah. We're at the beginning of a brand new series, which we're calling The Innovation Stories of Everyday Objects. Because we want to show that even the apparently mundane objects have been subject to innovation. We hope by uncovering these improvements, we can inspire ourselves and yeah. our audience to think differently about how we and they could innovate in their daily lives. So this week, we're going to be looking at shoes, the humble shoe. Uh, and our theory that we've come up with based on the research is that the key pillars that have driven the innovation of shoes has been around partnerships experimentation and people actually getting their hands dirty and trying to do stuff themselves so what we'll look at is some stories around those three things and then conclude that at the end but a quick bit of history i love this in ancient egypt um, the slaves had shoes made out of leaves i think you came across that as well yeah um, the, but they're slightly less impoverished but still poor would wear shoes made out of papyrus mm. which is what you used to write books out of yep. as you know but the elite wore sandals and the super elite would wear red sandals and the slightly less super elite would wear yellow sandals. So if you met someone in public, you would know their social status just by glancing at their shoes. It's almost like Havaianas now, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, nice. Um, and you know, for that reason, shoes have been really important so- socially and culturally. Uh, that you know, Shoes have always been a- attached to status, sexuality. And shoes are very responsible for the way that you feel. If you wear a smart pair of shoes and you go out, you feel like a different person than if you were in flats or trainers or whatever. So, as I said before, partnerships are a really big part of the innovation of shoes. So here's just a couple of stories to bring that to light. Yeah, and the first one is the story of shoes that allowed us to to ski. So the, the, the development, the evolution of ski boots. So before modern ski boots came along, ski shoes were made of leather and they had uh, standard kind of tie-ups. They got cold, they got wet, and uh, when they were, these were used for competition, in the um, in the 21st century, uh, they weren't that great um, until polyurethane came along. And uh, around 1960, Bob Lang, whose name is now um, synonymous with with ski boots, he started experimenting with with polyurethane with plastic. Uh, and in 1964, he combined uh, a new, more flexible polyurethane type of plastic with an overlapping flap and buckle to create a harder boot. 
Um, production examples started to be worn by Nancy Green, who was a downhill skier, Canadian downhill skier. And so these two, Bob Lang and Nancy Green, joined up in partnership to experiment with a brand new type of ski boot. So it was much harder, gave Nancy much more control and um, huge success for both of them. In 1967, I think she won the World Cup. In 68, um, she was um, Olympic champion and smashed the previous Olympic um, slalom record by the largest margin they'd seen for a long time. Twice voted Canadian Sportswoman of the Year and pretty much since she skied down the mountains in those boots, the, the design of those boots hasn't changed very much. So it was a real turning point in the evolution of the ski boot. Amazing partnership between Bob Lang and, um, and Nancy Green. Um, and a real learning there, I think, that scanning the horizon for new technologies and then playing with them and experimenting is really important. But this partnership between uh, Bob Lang and, and Nancy Green was, was where it all started. And we see that mirrored in more recent years. So. In America, the average American buys seven pairs of shoes a year. I have to say I'm woefully behind that, uh, which is around two billion new pairs of shoes annually. And it, it's really interesting from an environmental perspective because the way you make shoes traditionally is you'd have a, a piece of material, then you would cut out the shape of the upper, and then everything else would go in the bin. Um, so what Adidas and Nike are doing are really battling out over the knitted shoe. So the uh, they would essentially make a whole shoe from one single strand of specially developed fibre. And the crucial thing is, is that there's no wastage. And Adidas basically said that when they started on this journey, uh, James Kahn, the Global Director of Sport and Performance, said that it was conceived first and foremost as a sustainability solution. How do you build a shoe with zero waste? But the partnership bit is interesting from Nike's perspective. So their Flyknit range uses 80% less waste, single piece of yarn, less waste, less labor. Um, and Tony Bignall, the VP for Footwear Innovation, has combined engineers with doctorates and biomechanics, graffiti artists and industrial designers all coming together to make the shoe. And what a partnership, imagine yeah. all those people in the same room. So that's a re another great example of partnerships that the people are really making a third of all shoes in the world are actually getting diverse people to come together to innovate, to create a great product for athletes, for punters, but also hopefully saving the planet. Yeah, admirable aim. And I think it's that it's almost that, that diversity, you know, you bring complementary, contradictory thinking together is, is very strong. came across a, f a fascinating story about a designer that is producing killer high heels that don't kill your feet. So women look fantastic in high heels, it's part of the reason they wear it and they're considered very sexy, but it's not great for their position and their posture, it leads to back problems, it leads to pain. Um, we saw in the 80s sensible shoes came out but they don't really cut it in the boardroom. So what's the solution? Well Japanese designer uh, Yasuyuki Yamada has come out with a new chain of shoes called uh, Yachaika and they marry the fashion of high heels with the comfort of a tennis shoe. The way that he does it is there are rubber shock absorbers on the bottom of the heel 
combined with the springs in the pad to impact each step. So each step that a woman takes is, is cushioned and allow them to assume a more natural position while they're walking wearing the shoes. But then when they're standing still, they still look like a traditional shoe. So prototype shoes won a James Dyson award. Um, they've got curved springs beneath the heels, which dip up to three inches when the wearer um, places weight on them and walks. So um, hoping that they, he can provide the glamour of high, of high heels without the uh, sore feet, courtesy of these spring-loaded heels. Yeah, that's nice and it reflects history as well because it wasn't until like the, the late 1800s that left and right shoes actually appeared. Yeah, so experimentation really important because he's putting these two bits of material together. So mashups do work, they do rule, and, and even the ancient can, can be made modern. So something that you might not think is possible um, can, can be done with a bit of experimentation. Well, it's that classic innovator's mindset, isn't it? It's just like saying no to the status quo. Why do high heels have to be punishing for women? Why can't we find some version of some other material or process to make that better? And that, that's, that's the core of innovation for me. Indeed. So on to a, a guy called Dominic Wilcox, who is going to be one of our guests on uh, the Innovation Leaders series coming up. We're unbelievably excited to have Dominic. I met him on an improv workshop and his just go to DominicWilcox.com and be amazed by the incredible work of a, a modern day inventor. He was commissioned by the Global Footprint Project in Nottinghamshire, which is kind of home of British shoemaking, to create a pair of shoes. And what he did was take inspiration from cinema. And you know Dorothy, uh, when she clicks her heels together, takes her back to Kansas? Can out of Kansas. Out of Yeah. <laughs> anyway, um, uh, not a huge fan. Um, but actually, interestingly, uh, tidbit, the most expensive shoes of all time were Dorothy's uh, red shoes. Really? Oh, like £600,000 from a pair of shoes. I digress. So what Dominic uh, took inspiration from Dorothy and her heel clicking and wanted to create a pair of shoes that took you home. So what he did was using USBs and GPS technology, you would type in your destination on your computer where you wanted to go and then that would transmit that to your shoes and you click your shoes together and then on one shoe it would have in, had LEDs in the broguing, so the holes, the small holes. Do you know the difference in a brogue and a shoe is? Tell us. A brogue is where you have tooling, where you put the holes in it. If you don't have the holes, it's a shoe, shoes and brogues. <laughs> My digression is <laughs> You've like... You've done your research. I'll have in. Anyway, so in the brogues, on one shoe, it was all around direction. So it would tell you left or right when you got to the end of the street. And on the other brogue, it would have a line showing how close you were. So he created GPS shoes. Uh, I think Dominic is an incredibly innovative guy and he was he's constantly taking two different things and, and mashing them together like he, he was asked to design a car of the future so he made one out of stained glass windows just incredible so he constantly experiments with every new process and technique he can get his hands on to create a completely innovative product that sounds super innovative electronics baked into shoes i don't know trainers have seen a huge amount of innovation but such shoes in general electronics have been baked in we've seen titanium inside uh nike air jordans because they're they're lighter i've heard it this week that the shoe has had more innovation than pretty much any object yeah, on the planet well, apart from so. the car yeah, and I had longer to innovate as well. After we, and we've seen shoes that generate their own electricity that you can then charge your phone on. It's like uh, there's a lot of people experimenting. But the final section is getting your hands dirty. 
There's a lovely story actually, in 1935, a guy called Paul Sperry was sailing around New York and he slipped and fell overboard into the cold water, not particularly happy. And you know that way when you sort of come out of a mistake and you're like, I'm never gonna do that again. And he was like, right, I am gonna make a non-slip shoe and this became his, his passion. Uh, and he, he took his dog for a walk and he saw how easily the dog would walk on ice and not slip. So he, so he picked the dog up and started looking at the paws and the pads and actually with on a dog's paws, on the pads on those paws, there are like little grooves that actually stop them slipping on ice and other slippy surfaces. So he got his shoes out and started cutting into the shoes like a herringbone pattern. Mm. And then he eventually very quickly created a boating shoe that would allow him to not fall into the water anymore. So what he's done there is taken inspiration from nature yeah. and actually got his hands dirty, got the knife out and started cutting into it. And that is a key thing that we've seen with a lot of these innovations, isn't it? That people got, you know, rolled up their sleeves and had a go. And that's part of the deal, you know, you can't expect these things just to happen. Um, someone, Mark Adams, talked about uh, willfulness uh, when last time we, we talked to him about it. It's about getting up and cracking on, which is something that Bill Bowerman did uh, and is famous for, one of the founders of Nike. In 19, the early 70s, he was working as a coach at um, Oregon Track and Field and at that time, the running track was, was moving from grass to artificial and he was desperately searching for a shoe that would provide better grip and give his athletes the edge. Uh, he was having breakfast with his wife in 1971 and they were, they were having waffles. And he was struck by a bit of a eureka moment and realized that um, actually the, the, the waffle um, shape and, and form would, would be perfect for his running shoes. So he went and got some rubber um, and uh, poured that into the waffle iron and created um, what became, um, in 1974 when it was released, Nike's first like, like waffle iron-based shoe. So you can still buy them today. Um, it gave him and his uh, runners the edge and launched a global behemoth of a company that is um, still enormous uh, four decades later. So he, he, he rolled his hands up, he rolled, rolled up his hands, um, rolled up his sleeves even, in the kitchen and actually went and made something. Uh, and he then stitched, he then went on and took it to the next level and combined that rubber waffle base with colourful nylon uppers, uh, lightweight but also in striking colours. And so they became um, desirable by individuals and help the, the trainer on the beginning of that journey from being not just about function about running fast but also um, form and the aesthetic of looking good so um, a kind of a double innovation there from from Bill after rolling his sleeves up and getting getting down with the waffle iron. I can't imagine his wife was over the moon about him pouring rubber into his waffle. Well she's probably worth about 20 billion now. <laughs> So in, in conclusion, the three things we've found in research and the innovation of shoes, partnerships are really important. So what we suggest that you do and what we're going to try and do this week is break your problem into separate parts and then look at people who are also innovating in these, this space and create relationships with them. I mean, that relationships is a huge area and we'll go into more detail on that in other weeks. Second point is it's about experimentation. So be curious about what might work or even what might not work and, and don't worry if it if it breaks or it fails it's unlikely to work first time we saw an example of somebody looking at nature someone else looking at um, art so so look at the horizon there for, for what's new and can be can be mashed up together and experimented and then finally 
uh, like Bob Bauman and uh, Nike, get your hands dirty, don't wait for someone else to do it, don't ask permission, don't make someone else be an excuse and, and get on with it, have a, have a crack, if it doesn't work, no one's going to care, uh, but it might just, and that's uh, so three steps that you can take on to be a better innovator. And if you've tried any of these three and you've had success or you haven't had success, get in touch with us. Hit us up at InnovRamble on Twitter or theinnovationramble.com. If you want to use email, you can uh, find us at yesand at theinnovationramble.com. So get in touch, let us know how it went. Thank you, Christina Lai. Uh, we'll, I'll see you next week at the FT Innovate conference. Uh, they were sponsors for last week. Thanks to the CSEs and Elton for being so forgiving, given he'd never met us before this morning. Yeah, thanks to James Mitchell for building our app, and Matt Kempton for the logo, Lucky Elephant for the fantastic music you heard. And James Harrison for our photography and making us look publicly acceptable. We will be back uh, a week on Monday with an episode on the... Innovation of cycling, the bicycle we're going to be looking at. See you then.